before I introduce um, exercise five or uh, the fifth set of exercises, I'd like to say a bit more about exercise four and a few more things there and add a possible variation uh, for exercise four. Okay, so let's say a few things. Um, Given the instructions for exercise four in the, the first part with blessing, it would be quite normal, perhaps, or certainly understandable, um, to sort of hear that, hear those instructions, and think, even if it's not a sort of very uh, drawn-out discursive thinking, but some something like think in the mind, okay, what does blessing look like, or what does blessing sound like? What would that look like as a movement or gesture, or what would it sound like? And so there's a kind of uh, process uh, that's instigated by the mind, maybe by uh, past associations with blessing, if we have any, because in our culture it's not a very... Um, it's not a word that's in common currency anymore, that has much currency outside of certain... Uh, narrowing circles but maybe we think oh, what does blessing look like and we, we draw upon past associations um, from here or there or whatever um, so perhaps putting the hands on the head in some traditions that's part of what how one blesses one places one's hands on someone's head and utters a blessing confers a blessing or in other traditions sometimes marks marks a, a cross, a uh, crucifix, a uh, small crucifix on the forehead of the one blessed, or uh, just gestures in the air marking a crucifix, all these very beautiful um, gestures from other traditions. Or I might think, what does blessing look like? And it occurs to me, well, there's, there's a bowing involved. You know, it would be a very... Uh, uh, understandable connection to have made association to have um, or the hands in namaste in, in prayer pose pressed together or for instance the hands and the palms tracing over the energy body or even larger than the energy body of the one blessed and sort of conveying conferring the energy of blessing through the hands over and into uh, into that space, penetrating the energy body, the energy field, the being, with blessing through the hands and through that um, that tracing of that movement. And so, in thinking, so to speak, if we use that word, thinking, this is what blessing looks like or sound like sounds like. Out of that thinking and that those associations, etc., comes the movement, the gesture. Uh, or the vocalization and all the vocalization all that's really great and we've in a way i think when we've uh, done rituals and ceremonies on past retreats for example and included these kinds of instructions with blessings etc this is part of what's gone on for people and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it can be very very powerful but it's possible or just to open up the recognition or the possibility at times also of the whole uh, the, the propulsion and the instigation of the whole movement or gesture or vocalization not so much coming from an idea 
Not so much an idea leading to an action, an idea of blessing, an idea of what blessing looks like or associations, etc. So yes, that has its place, but just to invite, to open up uh, a space for a possibility of a slightly different way of entering into this intention. Starting, for instance, uh, instead, just with the intention of blessing, even if I'm not quite sure, as I said uh, in the last talk, what that actually means for me. And let it be an open word. Go with what I've got. Let the word itself be a seed. Who knows what will germinate, what will sprout from that seed. But just start with the intention of blessing and and just start moving, gesturing, vocalising, whatever it is, depending on which part of the exercise you're doing and the instructions. And so there's the intention even if it's not quite clear what that exactly means, that word blessing, for instance, and and just start moving with the intention, just start moving. And almost like with the incorporating the feedback, so to speak, from the movements, from the gestures, from the uh, vocalizations that you're doing. So sensing as... As you're moving, gesturing, vocalizing, um, sensing, uh, it does this feel soulful? Does this, if I do this, does it feel more soulful? If I do that, does it feel less soulful? So just as we do with imaginal practice and soul-making practice, a part of one's awareness, a very um, attentive, refined, um, careful uh, mindfulness on the sense of soulfulness in the moment, and what is supporting that, and what is uh, not supporting that, where it opens and blossoms and grows and deepens, and where it shuts down a bit or gets a bit flat or or narrow. So it could be the sense of soulfulness, could again be the sense of blessing, or both, of course. So what you're really doing is you're just starting with an intention and just starting moving with that intention, and. Uh, Whatever actions you're doing, whatever movements, gestures, vocalizations you're doing, you're almost receptive to, attuned to how that feels in line with the attention. So letting the movement, gesture, vocalization shape the action in in time as, as it goes, playing it by ear, so to speak, or creating the... Um, the pottery, whatever you're making on the potters, we're creating it as, as you're going through the feel of it, through the feedback you're getting, through, through the signals of soul and of blessedness and blessingness that are coming back to you. Slightly different than starting with an idea and then kind of replicating that idea and uh, perhaps then not putting so much attention on what feels soulful, what doesn't feel soulful. So they're both good, but I just really want to open up that space. Now, if we have that space for that possibility, that second possibility, if we do it that second way, or if there is um, at least some of the time we're in that second mode, then a couple of things. You know, One is, um, what, what, what helps me be in that mode? It's quite difficult. It's actually quite difficult to dance, for example, and really, really be sensitive to the sense of soul making in terms of the genuine uh, 
uh, authentic, imaginal, and all the elements and all that sensitive. It's actually quite difficult to do. Um, so what would support it? Well, one thing may or may not be, I have to find out, do I need to slow down? Okay, so do I need to slow the whole movements down, for instance, or pause um, in between movements, or, or what? What's the kind of rhythm that allows me to read, to sense, to be attuned and receptive to uh, the sense of soulfulness um, in the moment, and whether it's being opened and supported, or closed and uh, not supported, or the sense of blessing. So, what pace do I need to go at? It's just like doing walking meditation, doing any kind of walking meditation. There's always this question, what's, what pace should I walk at? But m- right now, most helps, whatever, I'm tr- whatever meditation I'm trying to do, whatever way of looking I'm engaging in that walking posture. So one is a question of pacing. It might be slowing it down. It might not be. So don't necessarily assume it is. But sometimes going slower allows us, affords us, a greater sensitivity, a greater attunement and a greater reading of the soulfulness uh, and the sense of soul-making, the sense of blessingness there. So that's one thing that uh, may be important. A second may just be, and this goes for so much of course, is... Um, you know, to the degree that we're judging ourselves in the moment, um, that will usually, almost always, shut down my sensitivity, my capacity to notice the sense of soulfulness and blessingness in the moment. So this is a strange, you know, for, by most people's, sort of by con- conventional behavior in our society, all this is pretty strange, some of these exercises, and this one in particular um, may be very strange. And then you're doing it in a diet. So there's all kinds of reasons it it would be quite normal and expected for um, fear of judgment or self-judgment to arise. Or, um, um, you know, silly or or whatever it is. I look silly, I'm not getting it, I'm not doing it very well. Whatever, Whatever it is. Is it possible to just let that go? Is it possible? It's a question. Um, but um, I'll come back to that actually a little bit later. Um, but to the degree that there's judging there, self-judging there, and fear of judgment from another, um, to that degree it shuts down our sensitivity, generally speaking, but um, also in this particular exercise and the kinds of sensitivity we need in this, in this particular exercise. But this second way of doing it, where we're sort of just... Um, uh, focusing on the intention, planting the intention, letting the intention instigate and lead our actions, even if the intention is not fully uh, comprehended by us. What does blessing mean? What does it mean to bless someone? I don't know. Maybe, or I only I only know a little bit, or whatever it is. But in the second way of doing it, or second leaning, let's say, second emphasis, then... Um, we're letting that intention lead us and just starting the movement and kind of reading it, surfing the whole situation, responding uh, with our receptivity, with our uh, sensitivity, responding to what we sense in terms of the soulfulness and the blessingness and and letting that shape, shape the movements, the gestures, the vocalizations we're doing. 
So we're letting the body and the energy body and the sense of the soulfulness in the moment guide the movements, the gestures, the vocalizations, at times at least. Seeing if it's possible to lean into that mode, uh, let's say more, uh, sometimes at least, um, more than the other mode, which is a kind of, uh, almost like a preconception, an idea, a notion, a memory, an association of blessing and what it looks like or sounds like. An idea of what the movements, gestures and and vocalizations um, uh, convey blessing. So both good, both fruitful, but see if you can sometimes get a sense of moving between those different modes, or at least between different those two different emphases, let's say, because it might not be so black and white. So, as I said, this is quite a strange exercise by by sort of con- conventional uh, understand by from the perspective of conventional understandings and the, and the way we conventionally understand what what the voice is, etc., and how we use the voice, for example, how we communicate. So usually, of course, we use the voice, and we think of the voice as um, an instrument, a vehicle, excuse, excuse me, through which, by which we share or communicate something. And that usually implies describing something. Through our voice, we share, communicate, and thus describe what I'm feeling, or my story, or something that happened, or an idea, or an image, or uh, whatever it is. And that's usually the way we relate to how we use the voice and what the voice is. We're communicating something through trying to describe it, to represent it, represent it. And even often sometimes when we're doing mantra practice, or we introduce a chanting, and we kind of hear, okay, this is the mantra, we learn the melody and the, and the syllables or whatever, and, and a part of us is thinking, okay, what does it mean? Or if not, what does it mean? Um, what's the character of this mantra? Whose mantra is it? Which deity does it belong to? Ah, it's, for example, Avalokiteshvara. Then, then I know. Then something, then I know. It's invoking compassion because Avalokiteshvara. So that in, in the chanting of the mantra or the reciting of the mantra or whatever i'm i'm invoking i'm i'm thinking i'm obviously concentrating on the sound etc and the voice but i'm i'm invoking the meaning of compassion even if those syllables i don't know what they mean and some of them don't actually mean anything and um, they're seed syllables that don't actually have meaning others are kind of uh, seed meanings as well in different mantras but anyway um, but oftentimes we as, as Westerners will will want to know, well, who am I invoking? So that when I'm chanting the Om Mani Padme Hum and it's Avalokiteshvara or whatever, I'm, oh, it's compassion. Okay, and part of me is thinking about the meaning of compassion. Again, I don't mean a lot of discursive thought, but I mean the whole vibe of compassion. And I realize that that's what this mantra means. Now, of course, that's not wrong. It's not wrong at all for a mantra. And it wouldn't be wrong for the first part of this exercise, exercise four, where the intention is towards blessing, letting that word blessing be soft and elastic and expandable. But uh, what if the sound itself, as sound, was sensed with soul? Not to do with its meaning. This is where the second part of the exercise comes in. It may be there already 
coming through and being um, predominating even at times in the first part of the exercise where there is the blessing. So some sound itself sensed with soul. We're moving towards a, a, a jungle of sounds, a landscape of vocalizations, mysterious because not necessarily meaning anything, or at least not just meaning anything. Now I've said this before, you know, I've mentioned it several times, I don't know how much it's landed, because again I've been too quick, too brief in going through it, but the voice itself, my voice now, is trying to convey certain meanings. And there's a logical, you know, path through what I'm saying, and each sentence is structured grammatically, syntactically, and all that. But at the same time, there's a level of the sounds that you're hearing that transcends meaning. Yes, there's the meaning there, and hopefully you're listening for the meaning and you're understanding it so you can apply it in the exercises, etc., and understand soul-making and all that stuff. But there's also a music here. There's also just the sensing with soul of the sound. The mystery, the ineffable mystery of, of the sounds themselves, sounds right now of my voice. And there's, a, there's an unfathomable mystery in that, if it's sensed with soul. If I can sense it with soul. It opens up a whole other, uh, it opens up other dimensions, but it opens up also a whole other direction of dimensionality. So the dimensionality of any kind of verbal utterance can be through the meaning. So for instance, when we convey something and it's beautiful or poetic or we convey an image or even convey our, our life story or something that happened or how we're feeling or an image, in, in the meaning of what we're conveying, we can convey mystery, the mystery of what we're conveying, the mystery of our being, the mystery of being in general, the unfathomability of it, um, for example, the unfathomability of the image, all that's conveyed when we share an image and the person gets the image or starts resonating with the image. So the, the, the person listening also um, dimensions, uh, the dimensions of what is heard, of the sounds that are heard, open up through meaning, but also uh, not through meaning through just sound themselves, sensing the soul of the sound themselves. Now, as I said, they can be there both at the same time if we enter a certain mode of listening and mode of speaking. So right now, for instance, the meaning of this and the dimensionality of the meaning of this and the sensing the soul of what's opened up through the meaning of what's being said in my voice, but also uh, the dimensions uh, that are opened up just through the sound, through the music of it, the mystery of it, the miracle of of hearing and of sound, this particular sound right now, this particular music, different than other musics, unique, particular. So both can be there at the same time, depending on both how one is speaking, but also how one is listening, whether we are sensing the soul, of course. In this exercise, especially in the second part of this exercise, we really want to emphasize, um, really in both parts, because we're not using verbal sounds, uh, uh, yes, we're not using 
traditional, traditionally understood verbal sounds or verbal sounds as traditionally understood in the first part of the blessing. But there's still meaning there. But in this exercise, especially in the second part, we want to emphasize that second direction of opening up dimensionality, beyond meaning, just in the sensing the soul of the sounds themselves, and the mystery of that, the incantation, the invocation, the spell-making. So, in terms of instructions for the um, for this exercise uh, number four, for the witness, the person who is um, just silently watching, uh, sensing with their all their senses and the whole energy body, remember, and uh, listening and looking at the person blessing or the person moving, gesturing, vocalizing. Um, in a way. The exercise there, or the emphasis of the exercise, is really just on noticing. And I think we demonstrated this at the beginning, if I remember, of that... Um, I've forgotten what it's called now, movement movement and voice and the possibilities of soul, or something like that. And Catherine and I de- demonstrated as a diet, and I asked her to move, and she, did, she made very, uh, very uh, subtle movements very subtle, in fact almost none she hardly did anything apart from blink a few times if I remember but if I'm uh, open enough, then the whole body in relationship, sensing with the whole energy body we've talked about this uh, several times bringing the whole energy body in, into sensual relationship there uh, without touching in this case um, then even the blinking of an eye, I'm going to notice um, that that has an effect in in my energy body, um, in, even in my emotional body, and, and in my soul. Actually, any movement, any gesture, any vocalization will affect the energy body, um, and let's say the emotions, but we're talking about very, very subtle. If it's a very subtle movement, it might be very subtle, because it might be very, very strong. It depends on all kinds of things, of course. Um, but there's no pressure for the witness for it to be this or that experience. Really, I'm just noticing what are the effects I notice in my energy body um, and in the field in uh, with these movements, gestures, vocalizations, pauses, silences, all the rest of it. Just noticing. It doesn't have to be this or that. So it becomes, for the witness, so to speak, for that person in that role, it becomes really an exercise in relational sensitivity. And that's the emphasis. For the person who's moving or gesturing or vocalizing, um, it may be uh, that one is you know, really quite baffled by these instructions, or it goes along okay, and then one becomes just a bit completely stumped, um, or at a bit at a loss of what to do or how to move or what what to what to vocalize etc so again would would be very understandable very normal and completely okay so if that happens one one way of uh, responding to that is just pause just stop and just sense sense the self sense the other sense the space that you're in sense the energy body sense what's going on um, emotionally and just be with that sense um, and 
uh, and out of that sensing in the pause, without pressure, then maybe allowing yourself to pause. In other words, not not feeling like I have to I have to keep doing something, I have to keep producing some kind of movement or gesture or vocalization. Allowing yourself to stop, pause, and sense, and taking the pressure off that way, but but remaining attentive and connected and alive and attuned to the experience of self, other world, energy body, and emotional body. And then perhaps out of that, um, out of that sensitivity and attunement in the pause comes uh, uh, the instigation, uh, the seed of, of, of the next movement or gesture. Or so that would be one response. Another is kind of the opposite or complementary, which is don't stop. Okay, so I'm baffled and stumped and a bit at a a loss what to do, but just kind of just see if you can just keep moving or gesturing. And as I said before, actually let the the material, in other words, the movement, the gesture, the voice, still be there. The material is still there. You're not taking your hands off off um, off off the clay on the potter's wheel. You are not uh, taking your hands off the piano. You keep moving off on the piano, and and there's making sounds as you move them, and you're responding to the sounds that you hear and to how they make you feel and your sense of them. So rather than stopping the, uh, the vocalization, the, the gesture, the movement, you actually just keep going. Don't stop. Don't don't let the bafflement or stumpness or confusion stop you. Just keep going. And, but sense as you're doing so and see if you can follow what feels in any way soulful. So again, like on the piano, as I'm bashing away, I'm confused. I don't know, I'm not a piano player. What the hell am I doing? I don't know. But when I do this, I, I press these ones down there, for example, in the low register, I press them very soft. Ooh, yeah, okay. Very soft and quiet in the low register and it's kind of dissonant. Okay, well, that creates something. And I can kind of feel a certain mood with that. And there's a little something moving in my energy, body, and soul. And then it occurs to me, just out of that very sensitivity, that something, uh, little darts of of notes high up on the high end of the piano will complement that. And so I do that. I'm not a piano player. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just I'm just responding to the feel. But I don't stop the material, the flow of the material, the flow of the. In the, in the piano analogy, and the, the, I don't stop the flow of the sounds which come from the movement of my fingers hitting the keys. And in this exercise, I don't stop the flow of the material, means I don't stop moving, gesturing, and vocalizing. But I'm just tuning in and sensing as it rolls along, as there's this flow of the material, and I follow what feels, in as best as I can, what feels in any way. Uh, Soulful. So, like I said before, I'm letting the material shape the creation rather than um, the sort of pause and the inner sense and silence and then a sort of a creation ex nihilo sort of thing or this kind of pre preconceived notion or idea of what it looks like, whatever I'm trying to do. So, as I mentioned, you know, it would be uh, quite normal for um, sort of self-consciousness to arise for the person moving, gesturing, vocalizing. And it might be, you know, all kinds of things, variations on that fear of looking silly, of sounding silly, of seeming silly, of being thought of silly, a fear of being blocked and then 
being judged as blocked or just judging oneself as being blocked. It could be all kinds of things. You know, again, so much depends on uh, background and history and conditioning and upbringing and all, all that stuff, as well as as well as many other things, personality and soul style. But it might be, it might be that we we even expect that. Just expect self consciousness and awkwardness and um, a kind of a little bit of fear of judgment, um, uh, etc., to come up. Maybe maybe it's good to just expect that and to include it. So include it as an expectation, but also include it if it comes up. And sometimes it may not need very much. You just keep going, and it's included just through mindfulness. Okay, the mindfulness just expands um, to include that. Oh, okay, there's self-consciousness going on as well. There's a there's a, a bit of anxiety, or even a lot of anxiety about looking silly or whatever it is, or sounding silly. Can there be a bit more space in the consciousness because anxiety will contract the space of the awareness? And sometimes just creating a bit more space can help. Self-consciousness can arise, and in the very nature of what we mean by self-consciousness, in that sense, is a kind of unskillful contraction of the attention of the consciousness to the self, not a sort of skillful and careful and caring examination or inquiry or awareness of self-experience, but a kind of contraction, almost like an obsessive attention that's out of balance and contracted, so that opening up the awareness, for instance, to more sound, to the space of the room that you're in, if it's, especially if it's a large room, to the sky, etc., just that opening out of more space for the attention, for the awareness, counteracts the contraction that's inherent, really, in self-consciousness, in that kind of afflictive self-consciousness. And that also tends to be intrinsic to states of anxiety as well. So sometimes uh, just opening out the attention, continuing the practice, doing what we're doing here, working with the dyads, but just opening out the attention, still aware of the other, still aware of what one is doing, and the movements, gestures, and the, the, the whole resonances of all of that, the vocalizations, aware of self, energy, body, all of that, other, but also all that in a larger space. That just that movement, um, that opening out of the attention to include more, to cover a broader space, to encompass and open to a broader space can be uh, really helpful as one continues um, with the practice. And of course, again, the fear of judgment from others or self-judgment, etc. You know how important are the qualities of metta and compassion. And so, as always with these kind of diet exercises, we've talked about this before, but to stress it again, can be so helpful as part of setting up the space, the field, setting up the diet, setting up the temenos. Uh, we include, either deliberately and formally, or rather formally, we include a specific metta practice. And it can be just a few seconds or a few minutes or longer, whatever. We can set that up at the beginning. 
Or, as we said, we've been through all this before, we talked about temenos, sometimes we're just, you're with a person, and you, you can rest assured that there's temenos there. I don't have to actually uh, re-stress it. But setting up in, in the beginning, if if certain exercises or situations are likely to trigger self-consciousness, self-anxiety, fear of judgment, fear of um, self-judgment, inner critic, all that, then t- taking care to actually... Uh, put a little more emphasis and spend a little more time setting up the terminus at the beginning, or rather the aspect of aspects of metta and compassion within the terminus can be really, really useful. And that metta and compassion can also be, uh, you know, something that we in- introduce. Or just pause. Something's happening. It's getting in the way. I feel blocked here. There's a lot of judgment or fear of judgment or whatever it is um, and just just pause that and pause the exercise and um, you can voice that and there is an actual articulation of something to the diet partner or, or not voice it. it could be silent and one's just okay let's just spend a bit of time with metering compassion and not necessarily telling the other what I'm doing right then but just in that pause, however long it is, uh, moving into a metta and compassion practice. And I would suggest um, metta and compassion for oneself, certainly, because that's where the affliction is, but also for the other. And maybe even, again, a sense of a larger space, the space that you're in, imbued with metta and compassion, a field of metta and compassion in which you are both sitting. So all these are possibilities if or when self-consciousness arises. And then it may be, too, uh, to to just briefly touch on or offer a few other possibilities, it may be, too, that there's something accessible or a sense accessible, a perception accessible in in the diet uh, at that time uh, of oneself, of the other, of the space that you're in, of... Uh, the the whole environment, the world, um, that they can be sensed with soul. And some perception of sensing something or other with soul in all that, in all that configuration, may be really helpful. And so that may have perhaps started to happen, perhaps earlier in the exercise, and you can bring it back, bring it back a bit more deliberately, or lean on it a bit more. Because when they're sensing with soul, it will tend to counter that kind of... um, that kind of reified and contracted uh, self-consciousness, self-obsession, because that's not really a soul movement. Maybe a kind of squeezed, impoverished reflection of what's, if you like, originally a soul movement, but in itself it's not. So when we sense with soul, something opens that out. So there's, all, there's actually all kinds of possibilities, but really to expect it, to include it, and this possibility of self-consciousness and the, the affliction of that. You don't have to fight it. You can also said, allow it, but also place it humbly, so to speak, in the sight of the angels, in the purview, in the holding of the angels. What does that mean? Well, it's an open statement. What that means to your soul, what that means in that situation. Of course, it's very connected to what you just said about the sensing of soul. And can deliberately draw on or reignite a certain sensing of soul, a certain image or imaginal sense of what's happening uh, that 
places this very self-consciousness and the problem of that in the sight of the angels, in the holding of the angels, in the lap of the angels. And see what that does. One can also, for instance, just recognize one's fullness of intention or reignite one's fullness of intention as one of the elements of the imaginal. So why am I doing this? What's the primary intention? Is it to look good, to impress? Is it just simply to avoid being judged or to avoid you know, looking silly or whatever? Of course, no one's going to start an exercise like this, a dietic exercise like this in soul-making with that limited intention. But very easily, and uh, without our recognizing it, our intention can slip in a fraction of a moment, or just gradually it can slip, so that what started perhaps as a fullness of intention toward everything that soul-making beckons us to open to and move toward, uh, what can start as that ends up shrunken to an intention, again without our realizing it quite easily, of just trying to get through the exercise, just trying to get through the time, make it through the time with a minimum of looking silly or, or judgment being judged. So again, it's not to judge that slipping from a fullness of intention. Fullness of intention is a very, as I've said many times, quite rare. It's rare for that element to, to really be there in its fullness. So we're just reminding ourselves and recognizing that capacity of the soul, that inclination of the soul, in fact, that eros of the soul that wants to have a fullness of intention. It's already there as a soul desire. Remember, fundamental axiom of all soul-making teachings is soul wants soul-making. So in a way, that desire, that eros of the soul for soul-making is the most primary uh, desire of the soul. So it's already there. And it's a matter of just recognizing it, recognizing it, and reminding ourselves of it, re-accessing it as opposed to judging that it's not there at that moment. It's a difficult one, but it's also the most fundamental one. Interesting. And, you know, just another level, kind of less uh, soulful, if you like, but just um, remind yourself, recognize the fact this is an exercise, an exercise and a practice. It's not a performance. I'm not performing for the other, I'm not performing for myself or the teacher or the sangha or whatever it is. It's an exercise and a practice, um, and that means it doesn't have to be perfect. One of my very first teachers said to me, if everything was perfect, why would you need to practice? It's an exercise, a practice, and an exploration. So uh, all kinds of things are going to happen, and um, I'm not going to get it totally right and be uh, amazing, dazzling all the time very much of the time it's an exercise so all kinds of possibilities if or when self-consciousness arises uh, in that kind of afflictive way what can happen as we uh, do this this, uh, exercise number four or many of these exercises with movement gesture voice is that something in the larger constellation the larger configuration of what is uh, what is present, what is what is unfolding. Something in that larger constellation may at some point ignite and become image. 
So it could be a kind of general sense of divinity. The divinity is present in in all of it or in some elements of it, shining through it, being refracted um, through some or uh, more uh, or, or all of the the components, the constituents of what's happening at any time. It may be that the movement, the gesture, the voice themselves become imaginal. We we sense them with soul. It may be the sense of self. It may be the sense of even something like tradition. And you might feel like, well, what tradition is this? I've never done anything like this. Sort of nonsense syllables and improvised movements uh, that don't have any meaning, uh, that look potentially very silly probably to most people. What tradition is that? Well, I don't know, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They may still be an imaginal sense of tapping into and finding and being in in the stream of some kind of imaginal tradition. And that could be a tradition of the imaginal or just an imaginal tradition. Some esoteric uh, practice of of sacramentalizing, making holy. And as things become image, or, or if things become image, you know, a reminder, none of them need to be very clear and well-defined in order to be an imaginal image with soul-making power. I mean, exactly clear what my image of the tradition is, or what the, exactly the image, um, you know, was, if I had to describe the image of the self. Maybe it's hard to describe. Maybe it's not so vivid, not so well-defined. But it can still, I've said this so many times in talks over the last years, it can still have tremendous soul-making power without being clearly uh, defined and perceived on a, on a sensorial level. So to be can be fully authentically imaginal, can be a fully imaginal image um, without being necessarily clear or well defined. It could be an image of the other, it could be an image of the space we're in. Where are we when we're doing this? When this is happening? Or if you like, the time that we're in. That there's a sense of even just fragments or moments um, in this exercise of the, the blessing and being blessed, of moving and gesturing and vocalizing uh, in a way that's beyond meaning. Uh, there's a sense of uh, even moments of that could be uh, reflecting something that is always already happening. We are playing something out. We are analogs of an image that is always already happening in hierophanic time. And as always, you know, when something ignites, some some constituent of the larger uh, the larger constellation configuration becomes image, just like with the elements of the imaginal. When one of them ignites, then it's it's possible that the whole then ignites, and the whole thing um, is then perceived at a whole other level of sensing the soul, with a whole other level of um, soulfulness, sense of soulfulness and soul-making there. So that's part of one of the possibilities of what may happen here in different directions. 
Now I said I wanted to introduce a variation for this exercise number four. And that is, and in a way it's kind of related to what I've just said, but it's a deliberate move. Uh, rather than something that might just occur spontaneously. And that variation, that possibility, is that uh, it still remains a dyadic exercise, an exercise in a dyad, but your dyad partner is actually an, a so-called intrapsychic image. In other words, you're not doing this with another actual physical human being. You're doing this in, in dyadic relationship with an image. Same thing, though. So you take your turn to uh, move the body and uh, make gestures and vocalize to the angel, to your uh, angel who is your dyad partner, to the image there, to the imaginal figure. And then you receive in your imagination uh, the movements, the gestures, the vocalizations, the blessing and and just the mystery of that communication that from from the angel in your imagination and in in the first of those two when it's uh, two possibilities when it's your turn to move gesture vocalize to the angel to the image again like in other exercises it could be that that is uh, physically con- concretized in other words someone else uh, looking on a third person looking on could uh, see you move, see your physical body move and gesture and hear you. Or it could be, again, just in the energy body and in the in the imaginal sense, in the image sense, in the imagination. Okay, so there's a whole other variation for this one, which is um, in a purely, uh, if you like, purely imaginal dyad. Why? Well, there's a... F- few reasons for opening up that variation or suggesting that variation at times. Um, one is, uh, in relation to what we said before, that it, it may be that doing it on our own, uh, we're especially if we're on our own in a room uh, somewhere, that we're actually less self-conscious because we're not being... So if that's, if that's an issue, if that comes up as it might for, for some people... Um, that actually just doing it on one's own in the privacy of one's own uh, meditation space, just with the imaginal figure, that there's less chance of uh, self-consciousness rising because we're less under the, um, or we feel ourselves less under the, excuse me, scrutiny of another human being. But secondly, there's also a possibility not necessary, but a possibility that in doing it with an imaginal figure as your diet partner, that the whole thing can actually become more subtle. Uh, The whole thing has to be, it's almost like because perhaps we're in relationship with a more subtle entity, an imaginal figure, uh, our movements, gestures and vocalizations can be allowed to become correspondingly subtle. They have to, uh, um, we're less pulled into the gross. And there's a related reason, a third reason, uh, related to that, uh, opening up the possibility of allowing the movements, gestures, vocalizations to become more subtle. Which, 
I've said many times, you know, in imaginal practice, soul-making practice, but also in other practices, oftentimes the movement into depth is a movement into more subtlety. So we really want to keep that uh, range of things, the more subtle range, open and keep exploring it. Not at the exclusion of the grosser, but just um, a reminder that sometimes the more subtle is actually the more powerful and the more fertile and the more profound. Unless it tied in, there might be a third reason, which is uh, for doing it this way sometimes, doing it within intrapsychically, so to speak, is that uh, we may, it may allow the movements, gestures, and vocalizations to be uh, more unusual, stranger, um, and in the sense that whatever we're doing in moving and gesturing and vocalizing, it no longer has to look or sound like so much like praising or anything recognizable at all. Um, it may be, at least, that maybe some of the pressure um, that, that may be constraining movements, gestures, vocalizations, and also perceptions of sensing the soul, is, gets removed by removing the pr- physically present other. It may be. It may be. Now, for other times or with other people, it worked the other way. The actual presence of, of, of a physical uh, human being with all their dimensions allows something, uh, allows what comes through me and what I allow myself to do, it allows that to, uh, to have more range, both in subtlety and in kind of the un- unusualness of, of what I'm doing. But but do it both ways. Play both ways with an actual human being, a physically present human being, and with a um, intrapsychic image. So maybe it may be there are a few reasons why uh, this helps with just doing it with a with an Im- imaginal figure and non uh, not with a, hu- a physically present human. Fourth reason why is uh, I'm just going to touch on this briefly and just say it may be that the soul needs some things that are, so to speak, only between me and the angels. They're secrets, they're soul secrets. They're treasures uh, and precious uh, confidences between me and the angels, and only between me and the angels, only between you and your angels. And it might be, as much as the soul needs to uh, realize its soul-making and its sensing the soul in relationship with material reality, if you like, physical beings, actual human beings, and again, the whole uh, range and dimensionality of what that means, materiality and nature and human beings, as much as that's the case, as a support and a foundation and the field for a lot of soul making, it may still be that the soul uh, still at times needs some things that are only between me and the angels. Only between you and the angels. So, there's a a variation there of this uh, exercise number four. And remember, if you are doing it, particularly if you're doing it with, um, and it's maybe more likely, uh, sort of, um, what should I call it, a near enemy or far enemy, but certainly a, 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 
a, de- a deviation, a perversion a little bit um, from the intention of the practice, whether it's more likely to come up if we're doing it with, uh, without a physically present, a, f- a physical human being present in, in a dyad with just the angel. It's more likely, I'm not sure, for it to come up. Remember, we're not here seeking information. So if the imaginal figure, the angel, is um, gesturing and moving in, in my imagination or vocalizing towards me, I'm not in that communication, in that sharing, in the very broad senses of those words. I am not seeking information. That is not my primary intention by far. That kind of thing may occur at times but it's not equivalent to soul-making. Knowing the future, or this or that happens, or something something psychic, or whatever like that. It may occur, to, it may occur at times, sure, it may occur, but it's not, it's not the same thing as soul-making, it's not the primary intention. And usually, when the intention goes into that kind of thing, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm seeking information. Usually that information is for the sake of a reified self and what this self can get or, or how it can aggrandize itself in some way. And then what we refer to before the fullness of intention has slipped at that point or it hasn't been allowed to um, supersede that other narrower intention for the self. What can I get here? Issues of power and as a self-aggrandizement um, come in. When there's the fullness of intention, that um, those other intentions get pacified and they get hugely um, superseded. The fullness of intention is much more powerful, much more primal, uh, fundamental, beautiful, sacred. Um, intention and these other intentions that I said more to do with the rarefied self and power and what what it can get, etc. Okay, so that's exercise four, diet exercise with two uh, well, two main variations in terms of whether we do it with the with an actual human being, with a soul making uh, partner or with an imaginal figure, an angel. And also the variations to do with uh, whether it's intentionally blessing or just moving completely beyond communicating any meaning. And also the variations of which uh, aspects of movement, gesture and voice of those three aspects, which combinations of those are um, included and allowed at different times. So lots of variations within there, within exercise four. Okay, so exercise five, uh, again, it might be viewed as a series of exercises. I'm not really sure quite what to call it. I'm not sure it needs a name, but um, in a way it's really thinking about kind of iconic moments, iconic movements and gestures, and entering into them. Movements, gestures, moments uh, that can become iconic for us. Those that can themselves become image or have for a culture at different times uh, themselves or for subcultures become iconic. So, for example, 
um, uh, well, I'll say what the exercise is. The exercise is to um, take one of these moments um, and embody it. Let it uh, feel into the soul sense of that moment. And then let your body and your voice and your gesture and movement embody it. Uh, let the energy body and the soul sense really get a sense, and then see what comes. Okay, so th- in a way, mm, in a way, this might sound okay. That's a bit easier, but the level that I want to talk about it at um, is perhaps a little more unusual, and so a, a, perhaps even a little bit stranger than some of the other stuff. So the first one uh, we might call and again very tentative with names here, but something like the Via Dolorosa, you know that name, um, from the Passion of Christ, when Christ had been sentenced to death by crucifixion, by Pontius Pilate, and then he uh, was beaten, etc., and then was given this cross, but this heavy cross, and uh, those who were going to be crucified, had to carry their own crosses, you know, weak, weakened and injured from torture and mistreatment and imprisonment, etc., and then had to still carry their crosses to the place, to Golgotha, where they were going to be crucified, going to be executed, basically. And if you know from the Catholic tradition, there's, a, there's the, um, the stations of the cross that they do every year, and there's certain moments on that um, whole path that get kind of contemplated, um, meditated upon in that meditation on the stations of the cross. But that whole journey towards one's execution, um, that's the iconic movement or moment. So Christ carrying his cross, it could be on the Via Dolorosa. It doesn't have to be Christ. It could be uh, someone anywhere um, about to be executed. It could be, again, borrowing from the Christian tradition, the martyrs about to be thrown to the lions, or walking out into the amphitheater and uh, before the lions, so they know they know what's coming. Maybe they can even see or hear the lions, and they're just there in that amphitheater in the moments before their execution, before their death. And what's key in this also is that they are surrounded, or Christ, or this person who's executed, or the martyrs in the amphitheater, or someone before a firing squad, is surrounded by those who are um, certainly willing one's death, but even more than that, they're mocking and jeering. It may or may not be everyone in the crowd, but certainly a good portion, and maybe everyone, is mocking and jeering the victim of execution. And yet, so this is all part of him describing this moment, and yet, the one about to be executed has faith. What does that mean? Faith in what? Has a sense of the angel somehow. Has perhaps even a sense of themselves as image, or even the whole scene as image, and the whole event as image, and the whole transpiring of their execution and death and the mockery and the loneliness, has a sense of 
somehow in this horrific and tragic death, execution, brutality, there is somehow my telos here. This is somehow part of what I've been called towards. Somehow this is part of my fulfilling my duty to the angels, to the daemon, to the divine, to the images. Now, it's not that the, the horror and the suffering and the death itself, themselves, or taken alone, so to speak, that uh, form the telos, that constitute the telos, but rather they are somehow part of a piece of a much larger soul movement and soul duty because of how the soul is moving through the whole thing, how the soul is relating to it. It's that together with the suffering. And also because of what and who the soul whom the soul is standing with because of what and whom the soul is standing with and standing for it's this standing with and standing for and the how of the ways in which the soul is moving through that dukkha, that suffering and seeing it and sensing it with soul and relating to it that this becomes, all this becomes somehow mysteriously part of a, a, a larger, a wider and more profound telos, movement of soul. And of course, it may well be as well that amongst all these, uh, the sense of rightness and the presence of the angel and the, uh, the dimensionality and all that, it may be that, uh, uh, probably would be that amongst all that, there uh, can certainly be, probably will, be um, some fear, some terror. Some sense of torment, some doubt, sense of loss and grief, of course, the sense of the soul being stretched to its limits by what it's being asked to go through, almost perhaps to breaking point, whatever that might mean. So that those that kind of complex emotional and soul complex of emotional and soul reactions can be there too. So there's plenty here that can be very, very rich. So it could be any of those, it could be Christ, that that works for you, Christ carrying the cross on the Via Dolorosa, it could be the Christian martyrs to the lions, it could be just someone somewhere at some time uh, before a firing squad being executed, perhaps they're a political prisoner and they're being executed for speaking the truth, speaking out against power. The outer environment of that whole image has with it this jeering, and this incredible cruelty, but also jeering. The inner environment, so to speak, or the soul environment, has with it faith, a sense of the angel, a sense of sensing the soul, self as image, other, maybe the whole scene as image, a sense of one's telos, one's duty. Again, could be 
really quite specific or really not very specific. And the exercise here, this is the first part of exercise five, and they don't have to be in any order. I think there's four parts for now we could add or change some or whatever. I'm just throwing out some examples here. Um, but in this first one, then, one might just just stand there. I'm just standing in the amphitheater. I'm just standing before the firing squad. Or it could be the walking. Walking towards the place where they put you to be executed, or whatever it was. Walking out to the middle of the amphitheater. So, uh, that's the image. Okay. And your job is again to sense into what, in, in that whole vague description I've give, given and those possibilities, and there could be plenty of other possibilities, that kind of thing. Getting a, sen- a soul sense for it, sensing it in the energy body, listening to the energy body, listening to the emotional and soul resonances, and then just seeing what movements, gestures, voice, or vocalizations want to come. So I'm going to give the second one, um, and then I'm going to say something to qualify this whole exercise. The second one um, is an iconic moment from the Buddhist tradition, uh, the Bhumi Sparsha Mudra. Uh, Bhumi Sparsha Mudra, which means the gesture. Mudra is a gesture. Um, Bhumi is earth or ground, and Sparsha is to touch. So it's the gesture of the Buddha touching the earth. You've seen the statue, many of you will have seen the statue with his right hand sitting sitting there in meditative posture by his with the Buddha's right hand touching the earth. And this goes back to the mythological story on the night of his of his awakening, and uh, the Buddha to be was sitting there uh, meditating, practicing for awakening, and Mara comes and challenges him and, and uh, attacks him in all kinds of ways. And one one of the challenges was, who, who, what right do you have to sit there? What right do you have to sit in that spot, uh, striving for awakening, and to have taken that vow that you won't move from that spot until awakening? What right do you have to sit there? Um, and the Buddha, in response, said, uh, uh, gestured, touched the earth, and... Uh, Asked the earth to bear witness, the earth or the earth goddess, to bear witness to his right to sit there, sit in that spot on the earth, and work for awakening. And the earth did exactly that, and uh, obviated, countered Mara's challenge. So this gesture of touching the earth and calling on the earth to testify, to bear witness to the right to sit there, to take a a vow of uh, immovability in one's quest for awakening, and to sit there and to strive and to be awakened. So that's the Bhumi Sparsha Mudra. Bhumi Sparsha Mudra. Um, So it's part of Buddhist iconography, of course, part of Buddhist mythology. It's, a, it's another iconic moment. So that would be a second example uh, for this exercise. Now let's qualify this a little bit, because what we're not doing here is a kind of acting exercise. So this uh, refers to some of the other exercises that we've been uh, that I've been offering over the course of these of this talk. So 
we're not doing an acting exercise. So it's not like, oh, how convincing a portrayal can I give of this or that iconic moment? Or even if someone didn't know what I was acting out, if I was like miming something, would they guess exactly what it was? Oh, that's Christ on the Via Dolorosa with his cross. Or, um, it's not important. We're not interested in an exercise in acting and developing our acting skills. We're not interested, therefore, in what it looks like to an outside observer. That, what it looks like to an outside observer, is much less important than your sense of the energy body, the emotional body, and the soul sense of what's happening. So what that means in terms of the movement is that movement gestures and vocalizations that you make may not be uh, decipherable to someone else. Someone looking at you may have no, no sense that you're, you're feeling into and letting come through your body and voice uh, Christ on the, on the road to Golgotha. may have no sense that you're uh, this kind of person waiting for, the, for, an execute, for to be executed. Much more important is that, so, so to speak, inner sense, the energy body, the um, emotional sense, and the soul sense, and just how that wants to move the body. So I'm not, the how is, I'm not moving it so that it can look like, so that someone could recognize and say, oh, it's that. It's just, here's the situation that I'm trying to sense into, the kind of moment I'm trying to sense into, and trying to feel that with my whole energy body and all the resonances in the heart and the soul. And then what movement or gestures want to come? That express it, that are in response to it, that just hold it, that support the soul sense. So even there, you know, slightly different intentions. And again, I'm using uh, my sense of the soul resonances, etc., and the energy body sense, the emotional sense, uh, to, to see, well, what does help? What helps me uh, kind of cohere uh, the movement, the gesture, the voice, the soul sense, the energy body, the emotional body there? So if we go back to... Was it exercise three? Yes. When I, and I think the last part of exercise three was uh, what I called the serpent. And uh, if you remember, I was kind of careful to say what, what, what that is. What's the serpent? So again, one could hear that and think, okay, so now I have to move my body in a way that looks like a snake. So maybe I get on the ground and I put my arms by my side and I sort of wriggle around or writhe around or move, find a way of moving kind of like a snake and then, oh, it's a snake or it's a worm or something. Someone could tell. That's not the point. That wasn't the point in that exercise either. Um, and it may be also uh, that in these kind of exercises that, whether it's serpent or these ones that we've just talked about, it may be that there's, um, and of course with the, with the Buddha. Buddha's uh, Bhumisparsha Mudra, one could actually just replicate that movement. And of course that's very easy to do. You just take your hand and you, and you touch the earth. But what we really want is the whole kind of arena and nexus and field of heightened sensitivity and soul, soul sense and resonance. And then one's open to all kinds of other movements, um, uh, gestures and vocalizations as well. But it may be that actually in uh, 
this exercise with the serpent, or one of these from, from this exercise number five, that there's actually not much movement or sound at all. I'm just standing in front of the uh, of the firing squad, but all everything else that's that's um, endemic to that image, in the larger sense of the image, the sense of duty, the sense of angel, the sense of calling and telos, and also the mystery of that, as well as the sorrow, as well as the fear, uh, the beauty of that, the sense of faith, the sense of knowing one is. Uh, doing the right thing, all of that, the nobility, um, all that uh, is 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 there, and it may or may not transfer to much movement or sound at all. But that's the key thing. So one goes from that, uh, so to speak, inner um, imaginal sense, the energy body sense. So this is a, this sensitivity um, is is more more important, and in a lot of these exercises, you know, that's, that's the emphasis on the sensitivity even more than um, a sort of clarity of an image. Um, so we've, I've mentioned several times, you know, it's it's actually quite hard to let's say dance. Um, and at the same time have a, a genuinely imaginal image, a fully authentically imaginal image at the same time as one is dancing. It's actually quite difficult. That's not to say that one might not feel a kind of soulfulness in dancing or really enjoy it or it's wonderful in all kinds of ways or it's soul-making in some ways, but actually to hold a fully authentic imaginal image and be in relation to that image and dance at the same time in a way that both the dancing and the image, uh, the soulfulness of both, and the sensing with soul of both is is kind of mutually enhanced and uh, mutually woven together and implicated. That's actually quite hard for most people, even most people who have a, a practice of dance, etc., and of the imaginal, to really uh, knead them together, stitch them together, is actually quite difficult. So more important, I think. Um, um, in a lot of these exercises, is is the sensitivity uh, more important than say the, the the clarity of of an image, or even the presence of an image in some cases. Um, and sometimes it can be better then to start with the idea of developing the sensitivity to subtlety and and going from there. So we said that before. Okay, so. You know, like I said, throw out four uh, possibilities for this fifth exercise of iconic moments. And the third, um, again, I don't quite know what to call it. Perhaps um, waiting, waiting for the angels, or the hospitality to the angels. Some of you may have come across, um, there's a couple of online seminars that I did uh, some months ago, and they were filmed, and so they're somewhere or other on the web, I think. And um, a couple of them are, well, there's, I think there's a set of 11, but a couple of them are have the title something like Dharma and Art, or Arts and Dharma, or some, something like that. And one of the things, one of the illustrations I used for something I was trying to communicate 
was an icon uh, by Rublev, as quite a famous icon in the Orthodox Church. Of um, it has two names. One is the Trinity, and one is the hospitality of Abraham. And it refers to an Old Testament story of Abraham um, in his tent in the wilderness in the desert, and he sees three travelers uh, walking through the desert, and he runs out to meet them and um, makes them makes them at home, offers his hospitality to them, and they turn out to be angels, three angels. And so he feeds them and gives them drink and gives them a cool place um, in, uh, to rest, etc., in the shade. And so that uh, fragment of a story from the Old Testament, from Genesis, um, Abraham's hospitality to the angels. So if you, do, if you have come across, or if you do in the future come across those arts and dharmas uh, seminars, then... What I'm talking about here, for the purpose of this exercise, is really the moments or the time prior to the scene in the icon. Because the scene in the icon is actually just the three angels. Abraham is no longer there, and the three angels, or the three, if you like, persons of the Holy Trinity, uh, are just there at the table, having received Abraham's hospitality. Um, So this refers, in this exercise, we're focusing on the time prior to that, on Abraham and his openness of soul, his um, soul antenna, his receptivity, his hospitality to the angels and the imaginal figures. Well, what exactly is prescribed as a movement or a gesture or vocalization there? I don't know. But what would it be just to take that? And it's quite, as I said, um, at one level, some of these, this exercise number five, might quite as well, I'm just acting something. But when it's not even obvious what movement goes with it, and I'm not even that interested in it looking like that scene, then it becomes some an exercise at a whole other level to do with sensitivity and attunement and openness and just seeing uh, a connecting soul movement, gesture, voice. So it's not at all obvious what's the kind of prescribed movement gesture voice there. Can I feel my way in? And how do I feel my way into that? Maybe I don't even know the story. I'm not familiar with the Old Testament or even Abraham and the rest of it. Well, Abraham's hospitality to the angels, another way of saying it, it's it's the soul-making poise referred to in some recent talks. It's the waiting in meditation for an image, making oneself available for the visitation of the angels, creating, um, opening, allowing and supporting a space, a psychic space uh, that that will can be, may be visited by the imaginal figures, in which the imaginal figures can be created, discovered, born, can come. So... Another way of saying, well, I don't know the Old Testament, such. we're really talking about the soul-making poise, or that stance. And that involves all kinds of factors when we talked about that, but humility, reverence, there before the image has even come, there is in relation to the potential of the image, in relation to 
um, so to speak, the place or the where or the level from which the angels come, the images come. There is, in relation to that, a humility and a reverence. The elements in the imaginal are already there. The sensitivity of the energy body, the recognition that its creator discovered that it's a way of looking and therefore I have some work to do as much as it is grace. But it's definitely also a grace. All this is part and more is part of the soul-making poise. So this icon of Abraham's hospitality to the angels, and if you know some of that, some of theology of the Trinity itself is a kind of openness to each other, an economy, they talk about the Trinitarian economy. Um, it's the poise uh, in relationship to that, the soul-making poise. And, and we can have, through the history of our soul-making practice, we can get more and more of a sense, more and more familiar with... Um, not the soul-making poise, because it's not, uh, again, like everything else, it's not a narrowly, rigidly defined thing. It has a range, and it will be elastic and with soft edges. But we get a sense more and more of that space. We get familiar more and more with that, the range of that space, what it can be and what it involves. And then that soul-making poise itself can become sensed with soul. It, too, can become image. This is something I talked about, I think, even in the path of the imaginal, remember. Just the very uh, the very experience or occasion of sitting there in meditation, I'm open to the possibility of images coming. That too can become image. So in fact, any element of the whole, um, as I said, a whole constellation of the imaginal can become image. It may be that the reverence itself, as part of the soul-making poise, becomes imaginal or the humility, or, or whatever it is. Um, another way, and I touched on this the other day, just threw it out quite briefly, is um, the, or another kind of iconic moment here that may help you, help some people to, to find a way in to this third part of this example, is the preparation for the Sabbath on the Friday of the the Jewish Sabbath, the preparation for welcoming the Sabbath. And the Sabbath in its presence, um, uh, its sort of visitation of the the Shekhinah, the female aspect of God, sometimes also called the Bride of God, the Bride of the Divine. And what the Sabbath is, is a kind of visitation into our lives, into this plane of existence um, of that uh, level of the divine, of that aspect, of that face um, of the divine. And so what is that to uh, humbly and reverentially and with sensitivity and care open up the space and create the space in one's house, in one's being, in the house of one's body, in the space that one's in, the physical space that one's in, and open that space for the imminent um, visitation, the blessing, arrival of of the bride, the bride of God, the Sabbath bride, the Shekhinah. So that would be the third one, something like that. Abraham's hospitality to the angels, the preparation for the... uh, for welcoming the Sabbath, uh, 
the soul-making poise itself. Again, very hard to know what's prescribed there or what, what it would look like. And it may be that not much movement or sound is involved at all. But it may be that, that there is a lot. You know, so you have to you have to feel your way into these things. Okay, the last possibility I just want to offer for now, and you can hear in the kind of thing that I'm talking about that there are many possibilities here. But the last one for now is uh, to take um, the example of Rosa Parks. Many of you know the story, obviously, and what happened and um, significant part of, um, well, human history, actually, but also um, certainly civil rights history in, in, in the U.S., and racial justice history. So 1955 is in Alabama, in Montgomery, Alabama, and there was at that time basically, in effect, uh, racist laws, all kinds of racist laws, um, but also on public transport, and a kind of apartheid um, in, uh, placed there by law. And at the discretion, in this case, of the bus driver, they could ask um, or demand, really, um, African-Americans uh, sitting on... So the bus was divided into, into two parts, a, 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 a so-called Negro-coloured uh, section, rather, um, and a white section. And there was this basic apartheid going on. And if the whites-only section got filled, then the bus driver could extend the whites-only section, and basically make the African-Americans have to get up and stand so that the white people could sit down. And so uh, Rosa Parks, who was already um, an activist by that point, and um, knew what she was about, uh, was coming home from work one day, and uh, this is exactly what happened. The whites only section. Uh, she took her seat in the so-called coloured section uh, early on in the trip, and then and then after a few stops, the whites only section got filled, and then the bus driver told her to move, told her and uh, I think three or four others to move, three or four other African Americans to move, and they moved, and she did not move, and she refused, and uh, that's that's the sort of iconic moment, okay. So, unlike the firing squad, um, you know, the firing squad, the execution, the crucifixion, uh, well, the crucifixion is a little bit different, but um, the marches in the lion's den, it's unclear exactly what the consequences are, what the next moments will bring, or the long-term consequences are. What is clear is that it's dangerous. What she was doing was dangerous, and it would have negative uh, and probably harmful consequences. Um, it was clear uh, that it therefore took courage. She knew this. And she also knew something is right about what I'm doing here. And something is wrong about what is being enforced by the law, by racist law. So she was actually fired from her job. She worked as a, um, a seamstress in a, in, a, in, a, in a local store, in a department store. And she was fired because of this later. And in fact, she received death threats for years because as a, as a result, as a consequence for this, for this um, immovability. 
Um, what else to tell you about this? So, uh, yes, she says, I think it's in her bio- autobiography, she said that when that white bus driver, he came back and he said that to us and he waved his hand, ordered them, uh, he said, orders, order us up and order us out of our seats. She said, I quote, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. So already in what she's talking about, there's body there. It's in the sense of her body. Okay, all these exercises we're talking about have to do with body and soul and the connection between soul and body and her connection with her knowledge of what was right, and her, her uh, clarity in what was of value, what was, what was a virtue, what was right, what was wrong. That was very much connected with her bodily experience and the virtues of courage and all that. We've talked in other talks about how all that, uh, we can see all that, uh, understand all that whole arena of ethics and morality and values, virtues, etc., um, from the perspective of souls, intimately tied up with the concerns of soul. It's central to the concerns of soul, values, virtues, ethics. But I want to point out, in her, in her very experience, was something uh, very... Her body was very, very central. It was what enabled her to do that, um, perhaps, was uh, the integration of her bodily sense with the soul sense integrated with the ethical sense. These three almost not separate. So this, and all through these exercises, these five exercises, this is what I'm, um, what part of what I'm wanting to, to, to almost like, as I said, knead together, knit together, grow into each other, body, soul, and soul sense, and voice. And she, in terms of her voice, she had us. So she was already an actor. She was already pretty outspoken, etc. And she continued to be to the rest of her life, for the rest of her life. Another interesting thing she said um, was that in that moment, um, when she didn't move, she said. I just thought of Emmett Till, and I just couldn't go back. I just couldn't go back, you know, where he was telling me to go. Couldn't go back to the so-called coloured section. Emmett Till, again, uh, many people know, you should know, um, was a 14-year-old African-American boy, and um, something happened, but it's very unclear what, if anything, indeed happened. But he was accused of offending, put that word in, 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 in inverted commas, or um, perhaps flirting with, or something like that, whether even that happened or not. He was accused of offending uh, a, a, a white woman or a white girl in a grocery store or something one day, and he basically got lynched and murdered by four white men. And there was a trial but those four white men were acquitted of his murder. So she said when this, and that was quite, uh, not that long before uh, this happened with Rosa Parks in 1955, and she said when that happened, that bus driver came back, I just thought of Emmett Till and I just couldn't move. Now again, it's not for me to to suppose uh, the the workings of her, her mind and soul and heart there, but you recognize that 
she is also thinking of a figure, a dead figure. Someone who has become very meaningful in her life because she was involved um, to some extent in the whole uh, movement for, for justice there uh, with in, in relation to his trial. But she draws on um, uh, an image, the image and the memory of Emmett Till. So that's just an interesting observation there. And again, what enabled this immovability that she had and this conviction that she had and this uh, courage not to move, courage to break the law, courage to defy what she was being uh, told to do. Um, she also writes in, in her autobiography, she says, um, people say, you know, they, they will say, oh, I didn't give up my seat because I was just tired. She said, that's actually not true. Somehow the story got um, polluted a little bit or watered down a little bit. It wasn't just that she was tired. Um, she says, I was not tired physically or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. And I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. It's not old at all. No. The only tired I was was tired of giving in. Tired of giving in to that racial injustice. And that kind of uh, apartheid. Actually, and then, again, in terms of consequences... Um, one of the beautiful consequences, and again, this, this, this is part of what we don't know, uh, what we don't know in terms of when we really act in line with the duty of our soul and the callings of our soul, we can't always know the beauty and the fruit that comes out of that act. So one of the consequences was that uh, the the African American residents of of Montgomery, Montgomery Alabama, um, boycotted the uh, the public bus service, and uh, Rosa Parks' court case was actually being slowed down. So they had to have to exercise tremendous tenacity, walking to work, not taking the buses car sharing, where they had cars, whatever, um, really staying steady. It would have been much easier to take the buses. And they boycotted the buses, um, putting indirectly financial pressure then on the bus company because they weren't getting that business. And the buses just, the, those buses just, many buses just stood there empty um, in the garage because they weren't being filled because the African-American uh, people were boycotting the buses um, uh, weren't weren't filling the buses and paying for them. So eventually, the city uh, retracted, repealed the law uh, 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 requiring segregation on on public buses. Of course, there's there's a larger story there with the whole civil rights movement and the U.S. Supreme Court and, and all that. But but this is the one. If we can, if we can. Um, and these don't have to be exact. I'm just I'm just picking examples here um, to give you a sense of the kind of things that you might explore in these exercises. Uh, apparently, Rosa Parks, as a personality, was very sort of she carried herself with um, a very 
dignified demeanour, naturally dignified. She was quite uh, uh, quiet, apparently, as a person, and serene, but dignified without in any way being pompous or putting on airs or anything like that. And that, too, I think, is part of the the flavour of this image that I want to um, com- communicate here. So uh, her demeanour, her personality was quiet and serene, dignified, but you can hear, you can, I hope you can hear, you can get a sense of the soul power there and the soul conviction and how much her body is involved in that. And the soul stretch and all of it. Now, okay, so here's a certain personality, a certain kind of style of expression. It's, it's not to say, certainly it's not to imply that the only way to stand firm um, is, uh, is in a quiet and serene way. I don't want to imply that at all. But if this is the kind of iconic moment we're uh, drawing on or we're focusing on for this part of this exercise, then that's actually part of the image, that it is quiet and serene. Um, so maybe you can get an ex- uh, a sense of that of when, what, what would what would it be to sense into that whole the whole gestalt the whole uh, configuration of that whole moment that whole image that whole time that icon um, that iconic moment and then see um, how that wants to be mirrored or refracted or expressed or manifest or what in the, with the body gesture, movement gesture, voice, or or what wants to manifest or express in in response to that or from that as a seed. You must say that you can hear three slightly different directions there, right? One is kind of embodying it, seeing how it's um, uh, one is reflecting, one is more refracting. And one is just seeing um, what happens in my soul and from my soul in or included in my soul, even let's say better, included in my soul, including the aspects of my soul which are my movement, my body, my gesture and my voice, including those aspects of the soul, what what wants to manifest? either because it's refracting it, reflecting it, or thirdly, just in um, in response to it or from it. Okay. So, again, these kinds of exercises may, be, may feel kind of, at one level, very easy, but at another level, or, or maybe it's just, uh, maybe it's open-ended, and you can hear, hmm, could be, there's quite a lot of subtlety here possible, and could be could be quite difficult. I don't know. You'll have to find your way in and play and see. So all these exercises are really I'm offering them as seeds, you know, just seeds. Um, it's not my intention at all that these exercises become kind of canonical or rigid. This is now what we do. This is our canon of exercises. Uh, that we do in this soul-making tradition. These are the ones, and only these, and exactly these, and uh, that's not not my intention at all. I mean, there's many more possibilities. 
and I don't know, we'll see how time is and uh, opportunities are, but maybe we'll add to them or we'll change things, etc. Maybe, we'll see. So it's not that they, it's not my intention that they become canonical. There are many more possibilities. Some, as I've already mentioned, some of what I've offered or the examples or the certain directions and emphasizes in what I've um, put out here in these exercises are, are some of those emphases and um, and even the, the nature of the, the content of the examples are in response to different students that I've um, you know been working with, etc. A different sangha, a di- different set of students that would have come my way, a different situation, and probably almost certainly would have given rise to somewhat different content, different emphases. So there are different needs there. And so there would have been either slightly or very different exercises. But the principles of um, sensitivity, of developing sensitivity with the energy body, with the emotional body, developing range, um, the principles of developing sensitivity and depth and range with sensing the soul, the principle of kneading together, knitting together, weaving together, stitching uh, together to make um, really, uh, to make one movement, to make one body and soul. So it's not like there is the soul and there is the body, but actually making the body just a part of the soul, not as something other. Just as the perception uh, can be either uh, at times a soulful perception, sensing the soul, or at other times not, or more or less so, so also the body, so also the movements, the gestures, the voice. It's not really like they're two things. Take away my sensing, take away my thinking, my imagining. Where is the soul then? Similar taking away the movement, voice, gesture. These are aspects of soul. And it's like either the blood can get there or not. Well, actually, there's, as always, a spectrum. How much can the blood flow? How much can the blood of the soul, the waters of the soul, the fires of the soul, whatever analogy you want to use, how much can that reach those aspects of our being? How much does it reach? Or is it blocked? Are they integrated or are they divorced? So that's all these central principles of sensitivity, of range, energy, body, emotional, and sensing the soul, and this this kneading together, knitting together, this integrating of body and soul, body, voice, and soul. And we talked about uh, earlier, you know, actually various reasons um, why, or in relation to practice and, and one's life, and soul-making in one's life, and soul-expressing and manifesting in one's life, and in one's duty, and all of that. So that all those principles apply to these exercises. That stands steady. And the details, as I said, it's not really my intention for them to become canonical, uh, to become rigid, necessarily. Much better, as always, to understand back to this structural listening. What's the, what's the real main point here? But be a little bit careful, because sometimes people think, oh yeah, I understand the main point. And then the habit of soul, or the habit of the psychology, is, for instance, not to show up um, with that strong 
um, integration of thunderous energy, for example, in the first part of the uh, exercise number three, the thunderclap or thunder and lightning or whatever it's called. That's so much out of the habit of m- movement, gesture, voice. That, yes, I did it a few times, I got it, I understood the principles of why we're doing this, and then somehow just my prevailing habit reasserted itself. And then I'm back to choosing, oh, Rob said, the movements, it's not important, they don't want to get too rigid around the movements. And then I'm back to perhaps, for instance, just like the Born Aloft by Angels, it's almost, almost like opposite kind of movement, just very fluid and, and watery. And I keep gravitating towards that kind of movement. I've forgotten the principle. I might have understood it, uh, why we're, I've forgotten the principle of why we're doing it. I might have understood it at one point, but I've forgotten it. And in not keeping the principle current, it has allowed the force of probably long-standing habit, and as I said, usually the habits here go on for, are, 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 have been um, reiterated and strengthened over decades. Decades. And something, some other possibilities are, uh, have atrophied. Some other avenues have been blocked for decades. And so in the absence of really, really thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Oh yeah, right. Because the principle, in, in the absence of reminding myself why, then the habit takes over. And the habit for the, the weaker movement, the, the, the kind of more flowy movement, or whatever it is, the softer movement, the pink, fluffy angels, etc. Perhaps. But if I remind myself of the principle, this is what I said about structural listening and understanding things structurally, the principle tells me, if I understand the principle, then I understand, oh yeah, it's about range. It's about, the the principle is telling me it's about range of movement, gesture, voice, of having those avenues and pathways be fully open, fully available for the influx of soul and the efflux of soul and the manifestation of soul in life. I remember that's the principle. And so I want range there. I want them all to be open. So if I just remember the principle... I won't, I won't, the, the range of what I'm doing will not shrink to just the ones that I'm used to do, used to doing, out of habit, or indoctrination, or the cultures I've moved in, or whatever it is, or, or personal history, or, you know, trauma, or whatever it is. Okay, so this is so important, so, talking about some jhana retreat, and talking about the emptiness, in terms of emptiness practice, so much understanding the sort of meta-principles, M-E-T-A, the larger structural principles, they will help us, they will guide us, they will inform us in terms of what practice to do, and how to do this or that practice, because understand why. Everything's, uh, so much is dependent on understanding why, which has to do with the, said, the structural principles, the undergirding the whole thing. So, this is what we want. We want the body and the soul integrated together. We want the possibility of soul to manifest, express, um, flow through and flow from all aspects of the being, including the body movement, the body sense, the gesturing, the voice, the language, all of it. 
We want that to, soul to be able to come through there as soul wants to come through there. So that we can uh, follow our telos. We can um, discharge our duty. We can carry that out. We can have a fuller sense of ourselves. Sense ourselves with soul. Sense our life with soul. Our work, our duty, our relationships, our being. The aspects of our being. This is what we want. I think it was in the... I can't remember. I think it was in the Eros Unfettered series. And um, I quoted uh, a Sanskrit line from the Guya Samaja Tantra. It's actually a, a line that's quite uh, common. It's almost, like, almost a stock a stock phrase or stock sentence introducing uh, some tantras. And uh, in English it says, um, Thus have I heard, uh, on one occasion, the Bhagavan, the Blessed One, um, was uh, dwelling, Vijahara, was dwelling, it says, in, in Sarva Tathagata Kaya Guya Hridaya Vajra. Actually, it's a longer compound. And so what you get there, okay, where is the Blessed One dwelling on one occasion? And then you get this compound, which is kind of like a jewel, multifaceted jewel, that because of the structure of the Sanskrit language can be, can yield so many different permutations of meaning. Um, what does it exactly mean for the Bhagavan, the Blessed One, to be dwelling in that, whatever that is, this whole uh, Sanskrit compound? Well, it means multiple things. It means many things at different levels. And even each one of the way we might um, kind of carve up that compound, grammatically and syntactically, um, even that can, can mean many things at different levels. Sarawatatagata means in Sanskrit all the Tathagatas. Tathagata, some of you will know, is an epithet that the Buddha used used to refer to himself. He didn't call himself the Buddha. I mean, he came once in a while, but mostly he called himself the Tathagata. Um, and Tathagatas uh, was a word that was, I think, I'm pretty sure, around before the Buddha's time. And he picked it up. And even he gave multiple uh, multiple possible um, interpretations of what that word Tathagata could mean, what the name, or a name he had given himself could mean. Once you came to the Mahayana, there were even more interpretations, probably before him there were others. And there's a kind of proliferation of meanings as you get into the Mahayana and the Vajrayana. Sarawa Tathagata, all the Tathagatas. So the Blessed One was dwelling in something, something of all the Tathagatas. Tathagata also is an interesting word because it means it has itself also because of the structure of the Sanskrit language um, and the way words are put together called sandhi um, it can mean many things so it can mean the one who has gone to the truth or gone to the uh, to suchness gone to reality but it can also mean the one who has come from the truth come from reality so it's got Multiple meanings just in the word Tathagata. Gone to reality, come from reality, come from the truth, the realm of truth, the realm of suchness. So the Blessed One was dwelling in the Kaya Vakchita, the body, speech, and mind. Kaya Vakchita, Vakchita. Um, what kind of body, speech, mind? Um, body, speech, mind of all the Tathagatas. 
but also qualified by some adjectives. And again, this depends on how you carve out that Sanskrit compound. Uh, guya is a word that's sometimes there in the tantric text, sometimes not. I'll put it in right now, it doesn't really matter. It's optional. But two others that are definitely Hridaya and Vajra. Vajra is diamond, and Hridaya is something like heart essence. And Guya is secret. So the Blessed One, the Bhagawan, was dwelling, the Jahara, in the diamond, which also means indestructible, eternal. He was dwelling in the, the indestructible, the diamond heart essence, or the diamond secret heart essence, or the diamond heart essence of the secret, you can carve it many ways, of the body, speech, and mind of all Tathagatas, of all Buddhas, of all those who are gone to and come from the truth. So, there's so many, so many directions uh, of, of meaning, so many ways the light can uh, reflect from and refract through this multifaceted jewel of this phrase, of this uh, Sanskrit compound, Actually, there's more, more even there. I'm just taking these phrases. Is it possible that we too, in our lives, in soul-making, when we're sensing the soul, with that soul-making poise, when the elements of the imaginal are ignited, when we are sensing the soul, that we too have opened up the body, the avenues of the body, of the voice, of movement, the gesture, the range, the possibility, the depth, the sensitivity, the beauty, so that they too, like a multifaceted diamond, have, have that range of directionality, all the attributes of Buddhahood, all that uh, Dharmakaya, the, the body of the attributes of the Buddha, of the, of the transcendent Buddha, the primordial Buddha. Can we uh, exercise and open up the channels of our being, our, 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 the, the movements we make, the body, the sense of the body, the sense of the emotions, the gestures, the voice, so that um, at times, at least, we too are dwelling, vijahar, in the diamond, the indestructible, the eternal heart essence of the body, speech, and mind of all Buddhas, all Tathagatas, all those who go to and come from this transcendent truth, this transcendent reality, this reality that is both transcendent and imminent. So I want, if I can, to actually talk a bit more about Buddha nature and this kind of thing. I just want to tie it to what we've just done. That movement, gesture, voice, body and speech, as well as mind, sensing and thinking, cognition, which we've talked much more about in the balance of things in the soul-making dharma. All of that can be open to, can reflect and refract the 
soul making of the Dharmakaya, the sensing of soul of Dharmakaya, the soul duty of the Dharmakaya, which is my soul duty. The one that soul wants to come through me. So, have I opened up those channels? Have I exercised them? Have I pushed them out and stretched them from any kind of um, habitual collapse or block that might have accrued there, as I said, over years or decades for all kinds of reasons, so that more and more of my being, more and more of the aspects of my being are available, are open for soul to come through, to be soul and to make soul. This is part of the why we're doing all this. Just to say one last thing for now <clears throat> in regard to these exercises and this notion of preliminaries. And, you know, I've said part of it before, which is that we can have a preliminary exercise or a sort of foundation exercise. And as we develop that, and as the soul-making develops, the range, <clears throat> both in terms of uh, sort of lateral scope, breadth, and depth and dimensionality, <clears throat> and the sensitivity and the subtlety and all the rest of it, of that practice really starts to expand as we practice the exercises, as the soul-making kicks in, in relation to those preliminary exercises in that field, that arena or domain. What started as a preliminary becomes in itself soul-making and gets stretched in all kinds of ways. So I want to repeat that as well here now. The second thing, and very related, is if you ask, uh, say, Tibetan Rinpoche or someone with a lot of practice in the Tibetan tradition or who's even regarded as a master, and you ask them, let's say Dzogchen master or something like that, where there's so much emphasis on Dzogchen on not doing and sort of the ultimate practice and that kind of language or some Mahamudra traditions, etc. And you actually ask them or they report what they spend most of their formal practice time doing, they still, even after many years, spend perhaps most of their time doing what are basically preliminary exercises. Gondro is the Tibetan, some of you will know. So yes, preliminary, this needs to come first. This is what precedes. But it doesn't necessarily mean that then, okay, now I've done that, and then I stop. Uh, first we do this, then I stop doing that because I've done it, and I've accomplished what I want to accomplish, and I can just do my sort of more advanced practice. So there's that whole relationship with this notion of preliminaries that's very much the kind of dominant one, actually, in people who take their uh, practice in, in Tibetan Buddhism very, very seriously, and Rinpoche's and Masters, etc. And I'm not really sure about this word preliminary. I'm partly picking it and using it because there are preliminaries, as we've tried to explain, to certain, certain areas, directions, domains of our being and our lives opening up with soul. So in some ways they are preliminaries, but they're also, as we explained, they can be expanded, stretched, developed. They can become soul-making themselves. They can become extraordinary and not basic at all. So there's a whole range, and I think that's, you will get that sense with all this. 
So, you know, how does one relate to this, all these practices over time, as one's developing one's soul-making practices? There's preliminaries and then soul-making, maybe there's in parallel, these two and going back and forth, and the periods of one or the other, all that. So I don't know that that's necessarily universally formulaic. We'll have to see. But for right now, we can use the word preliminary with that, with that caveat.